Well, hello everyone and welcome to worship at Southwest Church. My name is Ricky Jenkins and on behalf of all of us who call Southwest Church home, thank you so much for taking the time, whether you are by yourself, with your family, with your friends, uh, to tune in to our live stream worship experience. Uh, in this new age of being socially distanced, I'm so glad that the church will never be socially disengaged. We may be physically distant, but we're still spiritually together doing the work of the church. And I, for one, am overjoyed that you are with us today. Uh, I would be remiss were I not to say a big and huge thank you for your involvement with last weekend's Resurrection Sunday and Good Friday services. You heard from our vision casters at the beginning of this program how successful we were and how so many of you tuned in to what God is doing in and through the mission of Southwest Church. Thank you so much, especially those of you who witnessed Southwest in our ministry for the very first time, and you're now tuning in as an ongoing and active participant in all that God is doing in and through Southwest Church. A special shout out to you. Uh, also, a special thank you to all of you who joined us last Sunday evening for our State of the Church event. Uh, we kind of just talked about the fact that every church in the world has been playing defense, and rightfully so, with this coronavirus threat for the last several weeks. Uh, but we gave you a vision as to how we're going to start playing offense as we continue in our mission to make the name of Jesus Christ famous through compassion and evangelism and leadership and connection. That mission continues to go forth because at the end of the day, Southwest is not going to be a cruise ship. We're going to be a battleship for Christ's fame and glory in the world. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and meet me in Genesis chapter 37. And while you're turning there to Genesis chapter 37, I want to encourage you even right now to share this worship experience with a friend or with a neighbor, maybe even a work colleague. Uh, you can shoot them a text and say, hey, meet me on www.southwestchurch.com or maybe copy and paste the link that you're on right now, if you can, to some friends, because we want as many as possible to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, a lot of you are new to us, or you're new to church, new to Christianity, uh, new to the Bible. And one of the things we do pretty rhythmically is we invest several weeks in a particular subject matter of study. And so when I say series of teaching, that's kind of what I'm alluding to, that for the next several weeks, we'll be looking at just one idea to kind of extrapolate from that how God would have us uh, do and be in our lives. So as we go now to Genesis 37, know uh, that we are starting a brand new series of study that I've entitled Pits and Palaces, the story of Joseph. Uh, Joseph is one of the great figures of Scripture. Uh, he's a man who goes through all sorts of dramatic ups and downs in his life. Uh, he goes all the way from the pit, a literal pit, to a palace. But in Genesis chapter 50, as his story ends, what we see is somewhat of a storybook ending, uh, this glorious ending where just God's redemptive purposes are just celebrated and recognized in his life. And it's a reminder to you and me that we're going to go through ups and downs in our life as well. But at the end of the day, God has a storybook ending for us as well. Uh, Joseph's life is essentially going to remind us as a church family uh, that even though we go through ups and downs, God's with us every step of the way. That, that the same God who is obviously with us on those mountaintop seasons of our lives is the God who's with us in those valley seasons. It's going to illustrate for us how God is just as much at work in our lives when we're struggling 
In the same way he is in our lives when we are striving, God is the one constant of our life. There's purpose for our pain. There's triumph for our trouble. We're going to learn this and so many more things as we go into the life of Joseph. I want to encourage, especially those of you who are new to Southwest, new to church, new to the Bible, our typical rhythm in how we do churches, we often invest several weeks at a time into one subject matter. It helps us understand God better, understand the Bible better, understand how to apply these truths in our lives. And so for many of you, this is going to be your first ever biblical series. Know that we're starting you off with one of the grandest stories in all of Scripture. I want to encourage you to make this series a part of your devotional life. Let's go now to the Word. I'm going to be reading a lot of verses for you today because I really want you to wrap your hearts and minds around this beautiful story that is the life of Joseph. Uh, Genesis chapter 37, verse 1, it is written by a man named Moses, and he writes to us these words. Uh, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Uh, These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them, his brothers, to their father. Now Israel, this is Jacob, Joseph's father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, uh, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Look at verse 9. Then he, speaking of Joseph, dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. And now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Watch what happens next, verse 18. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. What? They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, uh, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben, that's the oldest boy, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. 
that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 24, I have read from the greatest book ever written, and I bear witness this day that all of its words are true. Amen? Amen. He was called to be great. He just wasn't ready. He was called to be great. He just wasn't ready. At Southwest, these words provide for us somewhat of a summation of a great movie, a great story that back in 2013 was a must-see film entitled After Earth. After Earth was essentially a futuristic tale that had at the center the protagonist, the young boy, Katai. Uh, Katai was the uh, young, teenaged, privileged, maybe even kind of spoiled, wannabe great leader and soldier. Uh, Young Katai, this teenage boy, uh, was the son of the great general Cypher, also known as the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Uh, he was the great general Cypher. And so the story goes that essentially, uh, young Katai wanted nothing more than to be a great war hero, just like his dad, General Cypher. But there was just one problem at the end of the day, and on his best day, Katai did not have what it takes. He was called to be great. He just wasn't ready. In fact, Westerners, if they would have looked at this young man's life and his prowess, they essentially would have walked away with this conclusion. He was all hat no cattle. But the dad, General Cypher, not wanting to see his son left out of his destiny, he decides to allow his young son to accompany him on this grandiose mission. And so they mount their spaceship and they go away to like this nuclear age earth and they are traveling in space, but tragically their spaceship crash lands onto earth. This leaves General Cypher, the dad, now severely wounded, forcing young Katai to now be the chosen one to go and venture across this treacherous landscape to go and find the help that was needed to rescue himself and the remainder of his family. And that's essentially the story. Uh, Young Katai now has to grow up really fast if his family will be saved. That's the story of After Earth. This young boy has to venture across a treacherous landscape to save his family. But as you watch the movie that is After Earth, one of the things that young Katai begins to realize that as he is pursuing greatness and going through all of these ups and downs, it is then that he has a realization that it is the hardships of life that got him the greatness in a way that the luxuries of life never could. It is through the hardships that his maturity grows. It is through the hardships of life that his wisdom grows. It is through the hardships of life that his strength grows. It is through the hardships of life that his leadership and greatness finally land on his life. 
The lesson of after earth was this. It took trouble to get him trained. It took trouble to get him trained. Friends, as we begin to invest our hearts into this story of Joseph, that's essentially the idea that I think God wants to hand down to us, that sometimes it takes trouble to get us trained for the greatness we're called to experience in our life. What we're going to realize in the story of Joseph is that he too is another young and privileged and spoiled and teenage wannabe great leader, but the problem is that even though he's called to greatness, he's just not ready. And God's going to take him through a multitude of vicissitudes, $20 words that means that God's going to take him through a lot of ups and downs in his life, but he's going to do it for a specific purpose to make him what God had always destined for him to be. And as we navigate this, this, this wonderful story that is Joseph, we're just going to be reminded of the ultimate lesson of this series, that the same God who's with us on the mountaintop seasons of our life is the same God who's with us in the valley seasons as well. That God is not just with us when we reach the palace, but he's with us when we're wallowing in the pits of life. That the same God is just as much as work when we're struggling with life as much as he is when we're striving in life. Now, what I want to do over the next several moments is introduce us to our series introduce us to this person that we call Joseph. And in so doing, what I want to do is speak to what God is thinking when he allows us to go through proverbial pits in our lives by answering these three questions. Here we go, table of contents for our time. I want to beg the question, what is a pit? I want to beg the question, what is the purpose of the pit? Then I want to answer the question, why do pits take so long? I like to tag this text, the good news about the pit. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for this moment that though our gatherings are canceled, our church can never be canceled. That the word and work of Jesus Christ continues to go forth in the earth and we say hallelujah to your great name. I pray now, Lord God, on behalf of our valley and this nation and the world who's amidst this time of uncertainty and suffering, that you would speak to us, Lord God, and remind us of the Romans 8 promise that all things work together for good to them that love God and to those who are called according to his purposes. Bless our life through Joseph's life, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Every heart said together, amen. I want to go ahead and get to work. I got a lot of fish to fry. I ain't got but a few minutes to cook it. But what I want to do for the next several minutes, hear it, is to start to build the foundation upon which this series is going to rest upon. Uh, You need to know about what we're going to be studying. You need to know about the person we're going to be learning about. And you need to know why it's so important that we as a congregation work very hard to make sure we get all that the Holy Spirit has for us in the life of Joseph. So for the next several minutes, I want us to go to the classroom. I promise we're going to get to church, but I would be remiss. We're not to serve you with foundation. And I'd like to start off with this rubric. Here it is. I want to give us some good to knows about the story of Joseph. I want to just give us some good to knows about the story of Joseph. Number one, you would do well uh, to know that the story of Joseph is what I like to call an epic story. The the story of Joseph is an epic story epic story. Now, we are all quarantined, and my family is quarantined as well, uh, but one of the things we've gotten into is a bug collection. 
And so my boys are forced to do nothing but play in the backyard most of the day. And so we are just all things bug collection. There is no such thing as safety for a bug in my backyard. These boys got goggles. They got nets. They got uniforms. By uniforms, I mean the Iron Man suit and the Black Panther suit that they walk around. Anyway, they've got bugs, and they're catching bugs day and night. Well, the other day, me and my five-year-old boy, Cam, see a big, huge grasshopper that was this big, okay? And Cam's just so excited. He's getting ready to catch this grasshopper. And as we go closer to it, we realize that this grasshopper is not moving at all. In fact, I think that the grasshopper was dead. But Cam, in his Black Panther suit, runs towards that big grasshopper, and he lands it. Now, the grasshopper never did move, okay? I really do think he was dead. But he lands it. He's so excited that he caught this grasshopper. And he looks up at me, and he says, Dad, that was totally epic. (laughs) And to myself, I'm thinking, that wasn't epic at all, son. I think that the grasshopper is already dead. Anyways, but I look back and say, son, it was totally epic. And my point is this, that sometimes people say that certain events are epic that really weren't. Uh, sometimes have you ever experienced this? Someone saying, hey, you got to see this movie or you got to read that book or you got to watch that program. It is totally epic. But then when you witness it, it was actually underwhelming. Friend, that's not the case for the book of Joseph. I, I would remind you that the book of Joseph is an epic story. This is going to be one of the greatest stories you have ever witnessed. In fact, the story of Joseph is one of the greatest stories ever told. So let me go ahead and kind of build some excitement for our next several weeks. Let me just tell you right now, and at the end of the day, send me an email and say, Ricky, you were right. And here's my promise. Joseph has everything. <laughs> the, the story of Joseph has everything. Y'all, I'm telling you, you better tune your hearts to Joseph. In fact, the next several days, just start reading the story of Joseph, chapters 37 of Genesis, all the way through chapter 50, because it has everything. Joseph has drama. Uh, Joseph has romance. Joseph has intrigue. And Joseph has food. Okay, Uh, Joseph has um, uh, betrayal and Joseph has danger. Joseph even has sex and Joseph has food and Joseph has, uh, let's see, pits and prisons and palaces and food and it has global calamity, ring a bell, and it has all sorts of uh, sensationalism and all sorts of wild, unexpected twists and turns. And did I mention that Joseph has food, okay? There's a whole worldwide famine that's coming, and Joseph's going to be the one to save the day, but it also has a lot of talk about food. There's going to be one scene where this baker has a dream about baking cakes, and I just wanted to say that because, you know, I love me some cake. But anyways, my whole point is that Joseph has everything, so much so that if you've ever read the book of Genesis, you start to quickly realize that there's more time and space devoted to Joseph than any other narrative in the book of Genesis. We have more on Joseph than we have on creation. We have more on Joseph than we have on Abraham. We have more on Joseph than we have on Noah and the ark. Why? Because this is grandiose, epic story that shows us a beautiful illustration of God's redemptive plans and redemptive purposes for our life. Make sure you read this epic story. But secondly, one of the things we're going to realize in our study is that Joseph is, here it is, what we call a type of Christ. 
Joseph is a type of Christ. It's what we call in biblical scholarship a type of Christ. We see these peppered across the Old Testament, these various foreshadowings of the ministry of Jesus in the ministry of people who came before Jesus. He is for us a type of Christ. It's R.T. Kendall, that brilliant theologian, who said that the gospel of Jesus Christ runs through the story of Joseph like a scarlet thread. What did he mean by this? He's basically saying that in Joseph's story, we see a foreshadowing of Jesus's story. Did you hear that? That in Joseph's story, we see a foreshadowing of the story of Jesus Christ. Uh, Where am I trying to go with this? Well, one of the things we're going to witness is that Joseph has a tremendous destiny, just like Jesus had a tremendous destiny. Joseph faces tremendous and difficult hardships, just like Jesus faced tremendous and difficult hardships. Uh, Joseph, in the story, we're going to see this at the end, he's literally going to lift the curse of hunger that was afflicting the entire world. Well, my Bible tells me that Jesus Christ lifted the curse of our sin. Hallelujah to his great name that was afflicting the entire world. So we're going to see these similarities. And my whole point is this, as we pay attention to Joseph, we'll learn a lot about Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. So Joseph is a type of Christ. Thirdly and finally, I want to just kind of give a little preview of coming attractions. As Joseph navigates all these ups and downs in his life, but this still has this glorious ending at the end of his life, it's going to prove this truth for you and me that God uses setbacks as setups. Woo-wee! I could shout right there. Did you hear that? that? That in the providence of God, there's still the promises of God. Ha, ah, that God uses setbacks as setups. Ricky, where are you going with this? I'm glad you asked. See, you and I have a vantage point in Joseph's story. We get to skip to the last page of the story where we remind ourselves that he lives happily ever after. This whole chapter is about Joseph's dreams and the good news of the gospel is that his dreams that God gave him will come true. And it's just a reminder that God uses setbacks as setups. This is what I want you to hear. When God sovereignly allows you to be set back, he is graciously providing for you to be set up. I wish somebody could say amen right there, that when God sovereignly allows you to be set back now, he's graciously providing for you to be set up later. That is the good news of the gospel, so much so that in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph is looking at his brothers who had betrayed him, as we're going to unfold here in a few minutes. He looks at his brothers and says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What was Joseph trying to say? He's saying that God uses setbacks as set-ups. Pitfalls may come in this life, but God's providence will secure God's promises. Stay with me in the classroom for a few more minutes. I promise we're going to church, but I just won't serve you well if we don't set up this series well. So allow me to continue building the foundation upon which this series will rest. And let me answer this question. Who then is Joseph? Hear me, tune your eyes, tune your ears to this point, because I think if you don't get this, you won't get the remainder of Joseph's story. If I had to use just one word to fully help us grasp who Joseph is at this juncture in his life, I would have to use this word to describe our protagonist. Here it is. It's entitlement. It's entitlement. 
Joseph's got some good things going on in his life, but the truth of the matter of chapter 37 is that he's also got some bad things happening in him. It's a reminder that at the end of the day, you and I are the same. We've got good stuff happening, but if we have to be honest, there's some bad things here that sometimes God has to intervene in and just kind of remove some of that bad stuff so that the good stuff can thrive. Are you smelling what I'm stepping in? Joseph is suffering with entitlement. How do we know this? We know he's a dreamer, okay? He gets these dreams from God. God's got big plans for his life, but what we're going to learn over 13 chapters is that there's all sorts of hurdles that will be in his way. But another thing that we're going to learn is that oftentimes when God has big dreams for us and when God has big plans for us, that the big hurdles that are in our way are not so much the ones outside of us, but it's those hurdles that are on the inside of us. Did you hear that? Often the big hurdles that we have to get over in our life are not the ones that are outside of us, but rather those ones that are on the inside of us. Abraham, God had big plans for him, but he had a lying problem. God had big plans for Moses, but he had an anger problem. God had big plans for Paul, but he had a past problem. And God had to intervene divinely into their lives to kind of mitigate those weaknesses so he could develop their character so that they might accomplish what it was that God wanted them to do. So when you hear Joseph, I want you to think entitlement so we can see and honor why God intervenes into his life in the way that he does. Uh, Let's keep on going to the classroom. I promise we're going to church, but I want to introduce you well to Joseph uh, by giving you three things about Joseph and his personality. Uh, The first thing I want you to know is that, hey, at the end of the day, this guy is incredibly gifted. Uh, Joseph is incredibly gifted. In fact, if you peek to the end of the story, you're going to learn that he's basically going to become the vice president of the world. He's going to become number two in Egypt, which had the world seat of power in this day and age. Joseph will literally become number two to the number one leader in the entire world. He's even going to be instrumental in providing food during a worldwide famine. And you can't do that if you're not incredibly gifted, okay? So we're going to see this over the next several weeks. But Joseph had a business acumen that was off the charts, okay? Uh, Dude had a certain sense of integrity. We're going to see this next weekend that was off the chart. He could interpret dreams of people and decipher God's will just by hearing a dream. He had dream interpretation that was off the chart. He was able to forgive people who had wronged him. This guy is incredibly gifted, But at the same time, he was incredibly gifted. He was also incredibly spoiled. Uh, As you can see in the story, uh, Joseph's daddy, Jacob, has spoiled this boy rotten. In fact, verse 3 says, now, Jacob, Israel, okay, loved Joseph more than his other sons. Joseph had 12 sons. He had like 57 kids all over the place. But he had picked Joseph and singled Joseph out to be his favorite. Why? Because Joseph was the son of his old age and has spoiled him rotten. Now, this was Jacob's fault, but it went to Joseph's head, and this is not going to make out for good for young Joseph. So the question is, how spoiled was he? Well, the Bible says that Jacob honored Joseph with a robe or a coat of many colors. Now, in antiquity, this was a big deal. Uh, Color was not something that there was a lot of. Most people wore drab gray and drab brown. 
dyes and inks were very expensive. So whenever you invested in a coat, uh, what you need to think is a, a mansion that's on his back. It's a Cadillac with uh, sitting on 20s and gold Dayton's. I just lost most of you. But it was a big deal to have a coat of many colors because essentially the tradition was that the oldest child who was destined to have the inheritance and the authority over the whole family would be given a coat of many colors. Jacob breaks tradition and gives the coat of many colors to Joseph. And the Bible says, as such, his brothers hated him. It's why they set him up to be killed and sold into slavery in the story. So he's incredibly gifted, incredibly spoiled, but as a result, all of these things make for a young man that's incredibly unwise. Verses 5 and 9, did you see this? The Bible says he has these dreams that we know because at the end of the story, this comes from God, that someday he's going to be large and in charge over the whole world. Now, verses 5 and verse 9 says he has this dream that he tells to his brothers, that he has this dream that he tells to his mom and dad and his brothers. Now, this is what I want you to hear. He has a dream, and there's nothing wrong with the dream. But see the lack of common sense that the boy has. He says that he has the dream, nothing wrong with that. But then he goes and tells the dream to his family. Now, listen, if you have a dream that you're going to be somebody's boss, it's probably not a good idea to go tell them, hey, I'm going to be your boss someday. And this kind of points to the fact that at the end of the day, this was an incredibly unwise man. Listen, he's incredibly gifted. He's incredibly spoiled. He's incredibly unwise, and that spells entitlement. Now we see God's problem. Because God's problem with Joseph is that I've got big plans for you, and I've got a big destiny, but you've got some big issues. And God is basically saying to Joseph, I love my plan, and I love your part in my plan to not allow your entitlement and your issues to mess up my plan. Is anyone hearing what I'm saying to you right now? That for every last one of us who named Jesus Christ as Lord, God has a big plan for your life. And God wants you to be a part of his great plans. But too often we come to the table with great issues. So God lovingly and graciously has to intervene into our lives to rid ourselves of those issues that will keep us out of God's plan. Joseph is entitled. And God's basically saying to Joseph, your entitlement is going to mess you up. And it's going to mess the people up around you that I want you to help in your life. Here's the lesson. Entitlement doesn't just ruin you. Entitlement ruins those who are around you. I um, remember being a kid and uh, growing up with my parents, oldest of uh, several kids. And one of the things about growing up in the Jenkins household is that you just had to know that my parents did not play. My parents didn't play, okay? They believed in something called corporal punishment. In fact, if you look in the dictionary at corporal punishment, it will be a picture of Mr. and Mrs. Jenkins doing like this, okay? They believed in corporal punishment. In fact, I think my parents only knew two Bible verses, John 3, 16, and then that verse in Proverbs where it says, spare the rod and spoil the child. My parents didn't play, okay? In fact, in my household, we didn't have time out, okay? You didn't go to sit in a corner. You didn't have time out, okay? If you got in trouble, my parents would spank you. And when you fell down, you know, you took, you took some time out. That's how, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just playing, I'm just playing, I'm just playing. I ain't playing at all. That's exactly what happened, okay? My parents didn't play. I remember being, I guess it was like eight or nine years old, and I was at the grocery store, 
and I was pushing the buggy uh, for my mom. And we come across this other mom who has a a young toddler, three or four years old, who's in the buggy. And this kid is just totally obnoxious, hollering, screaming, talking crazy, talking back to his mama, disrespectful. And, you know, we're just kind of watching this spectacle. And I'm just, as a kid, my heart's breaking for this other child because I'm assuming his mama is like my mama and that he about to get it. So as a fellow child, I'm trying to send telepathic messages to this young boy to get him to behave before he gets broke down from the flow down. So I'm looking at the little boy trying to give him telepathic messages. I'm like this. You know what I'm saying? I'm just trying to help this boy out. And so he's just fussing and going off on his mama. And you will not believe this because me and my mama are just watching to see what's going to happen. This three-year-old looks at his mama and says, shut up. I hate you. Oh, my goodness. Y'all, I just, I'm just waiting for his mama to pounce. And truth be told, my mama is looking at the whole scene, waiting for his mama to pounce. The whole grocery store is finally saying, let's celebrate because this kid who was once alive will now be dead. And we are getting ready for this child to get it. Y'all, this little boy's mama looked at her little son and said, oh, honey, you don't mean that. <laughs> Y'all. All of a sudden, my mama, you ever seen that movie Transformers? Y'all, all of a sudden, my mama started changing into the robot Optimus Prime. And then when she saw that this boy wasn't going to get it, she looked at me and said, I know you better not ever talk to me like she that you better not ever do that up in here because I'm telling you it's going to be some problems. What's my point? His entitlement got me in trouble. Entitlement doesn't just ruin you. It ruins the people around you. And this is what I want you to hear. God loves us too much to allow our sense of entitlement to ruin his purposes for our lives. God's dreaming a big dream whereby your life will be a life of purpose. God's dreaming a big dream whereby your life is going to be a life of meaning. God's dreaming a big dream whereby your life will be a life that counts. So how does God secure it? According to Joseph's story, as these brothers see him coming with his coat of many colors, full of his braggadocio, full of his tattletaling, full of his always giving bad reports on them and boasting this coat of many colors, they say, look, this dreamer is coming. And let's set himself and set him up to be thrown in the pit. How does God secure getting rid of our entitlement and getting rid of our issues? He sometimes dramatically intervenes into our life. As they rip the coat off of Joseph and they cast him into the pit, I think behind the scenes what God was doing was allowing Joseph's entitlement to be taken off so that character can now be put in. Sometimes God intervenes in your life where what you were finding your hope in gets thrown away so that what he wants to have your hope put in can be put where it needs to be. This is what happens in Joseph's life. It's a reminder that sometimes God allows pits in our lives to prepare us for the palaces. This is true for King David, called as a 
shepherd boy to be king of Israel, but before he gets to the palace, he goes through the pits, ups and downs on the run from Saul, battle after battle, and then God can trust him with the palace. This is true for Moses, called to be the great deliverer of Israel, but 40 years in obscurity as a shepherd, 40 years in the wilderness before his people ever saw the promised land, God uses pits to prepare us for the palaces. So I want to answer three questions with the remaining few moments of our time, because like me, I bet some of you feel like you're in a pit season of your life. The coronavirus threat has robbed you of your freedom. It's robbed you, some of us, of our health. It's robbed us of our finances. It's robbed us of our jobs. It's even robbed us of a future that we were planning for. The whole world is in a pit season. I want to talk about what's going on with God's mind when we go through the pits. First question I want to answer is this, church. What is a pit? What's this metaphor of trial and trouble and tribulation? I define it this way. A pit is a hardship in life that God allows for the purpose of mitigating our weaknesses while developing our character. God allows those pit seasons to take away our weaknesses and replace them with strength. First Peter chapter one says, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, Now that we talked about what a pit is, let's talk about what God's purpose is for the pits we we, we face in our lives. I, I want you to look at me and I just want you to hear this. Everything God does and everything God allows has an inherent good and righteous purpose. You gotta hear this and you gotta hold on to this truth. Everything God does and everything God allows has an inherently good and righteous purpose. And this is what I want you to rehearse over and over as we continue to walk through this coronavirus season. I want you to continue to remind yourself of the biblical truth that promises that our God is a good God. Our God is a good God. Let me drop a word on you. Not one moment in history has God ever inflicted evil upon his people. Not one moment ever has God caused evil. That is not who God is. He is a good God. He is a loving God. He is a magnificent God. He never inflicts evil upon us. In fact, James chapter one, verse 13 says, no one can say God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Translation, God didn't cause evil yet he sovereignly allows evil to happen for ultimate good purposes. That God doesn't cause evil, but in his sovereignty, he allows it for an ultimate and righteous and good purpose. So what's the purpose for the pit that some of us are facing right now? Here it is. Over and over again, we see that God's goal for your life is for you to become like Jesus. You hear that? What God is thinking about your life is not necessarily for you to become rich. It's not for you to become famous. It's not even for you to become successful. In fact, nowhere in scripture do we see a calling to success, but everywhere in scripture do we see a calling to faithfulness. 
God's ultimate goal for your life is that you would become more and more like Jesus Christ. You need to understand this about God. He sees the end game. And at the end of the day, God is consumed with the idea of this eternity of you being with Jesus and becoming more and more like Jesus. And in his grace, he has decided to start that process and work of sanctification in your life today. God is not going to wait for you to become like Jesus. He'll wait for you to get rich. He'll wait for you to have kids. He'll wait for you to be successful. He'll wait for you to get into the college you want to get into. He'll wait for this coronavirus thing to go away. He will not wait on his pursuit in your life for you to be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that is good news for you because the best thing that can happen for you is that you would be like Jesus, that you would talk like Jesus, that you would share like Jesus, that you would serve like Jesus, and friend, to be like Jesus, that's where peace is, that's where joy is, that's where hope is, that's where love is, is insofar that God makes you and conforms you into the image of his son. That's what you want, is to be like Jesus. That's God's purpose. But the problem is that when we come to him, we're more like diamonds in the rough. And God has to do the work to kind of chip away what's not like Jesus so that he can finally get to the gem that he destines for us to be. Uh, Michelangelo, that noted Renaissance sculptor and artist, uh, was famous for his great masterpiece, King David, a giant 17-foot sculpture that's in Italy uh, today. Back in the 16th century when he was fashioning this thing, a tradition tells us that he surveyed various huge blocks of marble stone, and he was just going staring at these huge blocks of stone hours and hours and hours. In fact, it took so painstakingly long that eventually bystanders began to beg the question, why do you have to study these blocks of stone so much? And he would say, because I have vision for this stone, and I can see what the end is going to be. Ah, they tell us that Michelangelo began to, for the course of three to four years, chip away at the stone, chip away at the stone, chip away at the stone, so much so that people could not understand that there was ever going to be a work of art because of the painstaking, meticulous detail of chipping away the stone that they would finally beg the question, Michelangelo, how is this big, rough, chunky, unkempt block of stone ever going to be like David? And Michelangelo would reply, because I'm committed to the process and I'm going to chip away everything that doesn't look like David. I want you to know that God sees the end and he's committed to the process. and He's going to faithfully and graciously show up in your life to chip away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. We know what a pit is. We know what the purpose for the pit is, but let's deal as we close with the question that everybody's thinking today. Why do pits take so long? That's the question I've been asking in my soul. God, this coronavirus thing, God is scaring me. God, I want my babies to be safe. God, I miss my church family, Lord. God, are we going to be okay financially? God, is the world going to be okay? Is the bottom about to fall out of this thing? When, when these fears raise across my mind, that's the question. I'm asking, God, why is this taking so long? Well, C.H. Spurgeon, the great 19th century pulpiteer, said it best when he said, if I had 
but 25 years to live, I would spend 20 of them in preparation. His point was this, quality is worth the wait. Quality is worth the wait. Joseph gets usurped by his brothers. They throw him to a pit. He gets sold into slavery. More on that next week. And what we're going to learn in Joseph's life is that he's got 13 more years of tragedy and trauma to experience in his life until he gets from this pit where he is in chapter 37 to this palace where he's headed in chapter 50. And the question as I'm asking as I look at these 13 years is, God, why do pits take so long? Two reasons God gave me. I'm going to give it to you. Why God keeps us in the pit so long. Number one, it's because our issues, our shortcomings, They didn't materialize overnight. So sometimes healing doesn't happen overnight. Quality is worth the wait. But the second reason I think pits take so long is because too often when it comes to the plans of God and the dreams that God is dreaming for us, let's keep it real. We often bring a microwave timeline and present it to a crockpot kind of a God. You see, at the end of the day, our culture, our world says right now, I want it now, and I want it the way I want it. But too often in our lives, when we get it the way we want it, it's not the quality that God destined and created us for. We, we bring a microwave timeline to a crockpot kind of God. In the economy of the kingdom of God, Quality always trumps quantity. God would rather you do well with two than do poorly with 200,000. God would rather you go deep with little than be shallow with much. He's a crockpot kind of God. Any chef will tell you that if you're going to eat something, and if you had to pick a meal that was prepared in a microwave, (laughs) in a meal that was prepared in a crock pot, any chef will tell you that if you want something delicious, you pick the crock pot every time. Because the cock pot cooks it low and slow. No matter how tough the meal was, it gets tenderized and the flavor set in and it becomes perfect through time. That's why God takes so long. Ricky, you said this message was about the good news of a pit. I hadn't heard any yet. Here it is. Verse 24 says that they threw him in the pit. The Bible says that there was no water in it, meaning there's no sustaining power. There's no nourishment. But God is the only God I'll know who allow us to go through pitfall seasons where it seems like the things we used to depend on are replaced with the one that we need to trust in. The good news about a pit, when you've fallen to the bottom, that at the bottom there's nowhere to look but up in closing if you're in a pit in your life I know it's hard I know it's difficult but the good news is that God makes it obvious in times like these that he is the only one that can help you in the pitfall of life that you find yourself in so the scriptures say that we are to look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. For in him you have hope and you have life.
And I want to encourage those of you who feel like you're in a pit to simply turn to God and trust him and ask ask him to help you every step of the way. Father, we thank you for your word and for the truth of it. And I pray, Lord God, for all of us who are grappling beneath the weight of this pit season. But Lord God, we've heard that you've got a plan. And Lord God, you love us enough to not allow our stuff to get in your way. And so, Father, we give this pit season to you, asking, Lord Jesus, that you would make me more like Jesus and more of what you want me to be. Father, I pray for those who don't know Jesus, that even now, Lord God, they would pray this prayer. Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I confess that I'm a sinner, that I've come short of your glory, but that you have lived a perfect and sinless life. You have paid the payment of my sins through your death on the cross, and that you died on that Friday, but you rose again on that Sunday. And because of this victory, Lord God, if I put my faith in you, I'll truly walk in the newness of life. I'll walk in salvation for all eternity. Come in my heart, save me, and make me whole. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Read Joseph. Keep the faith. Stay strong. And until we meet again, I leave you with these words of blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon each and every one of you and bring you peace. For this blessing we ask in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you next time.